Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. And Bryant, there's been a lot of labor action lately. Workers in numerous places have called for a strike, and it seems like a number of corporations are listening. So true. And if you look at the landscape of today's labor market, it may be reminiscent of what happened in Philly nearly 80 years ago. Yes, we head to the Northeast for this episode, where in 1944, a transit strike shut down the city. And it was all because of race. Inequality on the job, straight down to the color line. Bryant, this episode is so relevant today because I had a chance to chat with Merrill Pittman Cooper. Now, he was the first African-American president of Philadelphia's Transport Workers Union, Local 234. This is in Philadelphia where Mr. Cooper was hired as a trolley car conductor within a year after the 1944 transit strike. The strike where the transit system shut down because... African-Americans were due for promotion from the back rooms to drivers. And white workers refused to work with them. This was a tumultuous and dangerous time. Labor unions and organizing efforts among workers are definitely a through line in our American story. Just like race, sadly, it's our American story. Indeed. But bigotry was not going to stop Mr. Cooper from getting the job done. He's lived through 17 presidents. Wow, 17. Yeah, and when I talked to him, he had just had his 100th birthday. Love it. What an incredible milestone. Tell me about 100 years old. What did it feel like to turn 100 years old? I felt felt good. I, I, I consider myself lucky. I never had a serious illness, so, you know, I'm hanging on. Yeah. I won't live in, I won't live another hundred though. Oh okay. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And maybe thanks to science you will and, and all of us will. <laughs> Two hundred years old. I mean, you've lived a hundred years, so you saw a lot of changes. I've saw a lot of changes. Uh, things that I never thought I would see. And this I my daughter tells me, don't uh get disgusted and don't give up hope. But when you live as long as I have and you you, you see the system taking you back where you were before, in other words, trying to eliminate your right to vote and that type of thing, you, you, you're bound to get disgusted. And I, I, I don't know that I have hope. Maybe I live in hope and die in despair. Mm. Wow. I mean, what that's interesting. You said you may not have hope because you have seen progress, lots of progress, I would think, in your years. But then you I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of progress, but nowhere near the progress I think I should have seen. In what sense? As far as civil rights and uh, and uh, the way minorities are treated in this country. And I continue to ask the question, why are we treated this way? What would, did we do to deserve this type of treatment? Nobody's given me an answer yet. Maybe you can tell me, what did we do? If I could give you the answer to that, I would have a million dollars. I would bottle it and sell it. <laughs> yeah, um, there is a lot. Um, that's a very loaded topic. I mean, I think you were actually very close to history, if, if I'm correct, in that 
you worked in Philadelphia in a very tumultuous year, in a very tumultuous industry. You got hired after a major strike because the transit workers in 1944 refused to work with Black people who were going to be promoted. And so you're, you're spot on when you're saying <laughs> this was a bad decision by people that would become your colleagues, and it was all based on race. All based on race, and uh, the president had to send in the troops when they hired the first eight blacks to work on the trolley cars. He sent in the troops, and when I first started, uh, I was operating the trolley from the front, and it had a soldier sitting in the back with a machine gun. Wow. It was tough times. Yeah. Now, do you remember, uh, um, Mr. Cooper, which month you um, started in 1944? Because the transit strike, that was in August. It was August 1st through August 7th. Again, this was a, a like relatively six-day strike from mm -hmm. the workers who said, we are not going to work next to Negroes, the word at the time, who were going to be promoted to drive the trolley cars. I mean, they specifically. And then you got hired to work the trolley car. Do you remember what month you were hired? Yes, September. This was a month 19, after the strike. Yes, September 1945. Oh, 45. Okay, so you yes. were hired the following year after the strike. Yes. Well, can and, and I just want to give um, our listeners some context. We are um, talking with a longtime Philadelphia transit worker, and, and we're going to hear um, how you moved up to union president, <laughs> which was amazing. But this was after a strike major event in Philadelphia where President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president at the time. This was disrupting the war effort. Troops had to be uh, brought in. And I want to read something that I found by reporter Jason Johnson, who's also a TV commentator. He wrote um, about the strike recently, and he said, James McMenamin, the leader of the strike, insisted that black bus drivers and car operators had quote unquote bed bugs were quote unquote unclean and would go after all the white women in the movement, they had a chance. He even paraded a woman named Kay around who lied to strikers claiming that she'd been assaulted by a black man on the trolley. And after a week of tension, during which a 13 year old black child was shot by white strikers in a drive-by and white strikers screamed the N-word lover and threw rocks and coals at black transit workers. Federal troops finally brought the strike to an end on August 7th. McMenamin was fired and charged with violating federal labor laws, but got off a year later when a jury found the evidence against him inconclusive. Does all this sound familiar? <laughs> yes, it does. Oh. Yes, it does. They were tumultuous times, I tell you. How did you get hired to work there? Well, I needed a job, so I said I'll try. It was PTC then. And I went down and they offered me a job uh, out on the tracks. Mm. And uh, I told them that's not the type of job I came looking for. So they told me to come back in a couple of weeks and I went back in a couple of weeks and fortunately I got hard. 
Wow. And then I understand that there were the, the problem that the strikers had was that eight workers were about to be promoted. But after this whole thing ended, then there were the double the, the workforce um, of the Black workers within a month. And then within a year, there were 900. <laughs> so, so yes. much for that. And then you yes. were one of those. You were one of those 900 that got hired. Which is yes. exciting. So then, um, so you're driving. Well, then you had to learn how to drive the trolley car. Was there was there training? Do you remember? Yes, it was training, and uh, the training was was tough because the people that were instructing us they didn't want us on the job either. So mm. uh, they only gave us uh, the training that. Uh, they had to, I mean, nothing extra. And I, uh, I survived, you know. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So that was under the Philadelphia Transit Company when this um, strike happened. And that's when you were hired too? Or yeah, it was called, it was called then PTC, Philadelphia Rapid Transit. No, PRT, Philadelphia Rapid Transit. And then it changed to PTC. Philadelphia Transportation Company, yeah. and now it's uh, SEPTA. For Southeast Pennsylvania Transit Authority? Yeah. So let's go through, like you were driving the trolley car and yes. there's military in the back with a machine gun. Yes. Uh, were there any incidents that were uncomfortable other than the fact that you were like, you know, feet away from possible friendly fire. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah, well, I had some uncomfortable moments. Uh, uh, the motorman that I was working with, he had nothing to say to me. He, I, I worked with him, I think, for about a month. And he used to get out the front and smoke his pipe, and I'd get out the center door where the conductor sit and smoke my cigarette. And then when he get in and stole the air off, that told me it was time to go. So I'd get in, close the center door. And I worked like that with him for about a month. He didn't say one word to me. No good morning, how you are you? Nothing. Wow, wow. Um, and then um, the trolley cars went away at some point, right? And converted to buses, or am I getting that yes. wrong? Yes, oh. I, I, I don't remember exactly when the trolleys went away, but uh, they, they converted to buses. And I guess that was around 1955, I believe I started to drive a bus. Mm -hmm. And um, when did the union and your service, um, your wonderful service with the union start? Uh, I, I uh, I used to hang around the depot because uh, we had what they call swing runs. You do so many trips in the morning and so many trips in the afternoon. So I used to hang around the depot and, and the fellows were playing cards and I used to run, get them sandwiches. And I finally got started in the union because the, there was the chairman uh, in the depot that I was uh, working, uh, he he noticed that I was popular with the guys, so he called himself taking me under his wing and making a union man out of me. And 
I went from uh, a steward in the depot to chairman in the depot, and then uh, the guy, the fellow that was running for president of the local, he came to me and says, I'm going to put you on my ticket uh, because he felt that I could bring the black vote. Let's don't kid one another. And he, he also said to me, I'm going to put you on the ticket, but someday you'll be running against me. I said, do you think I'm that type of individual? I said, you kind enough to put me on the ticket and I'm going to run against you. In the back of my mind, I said to myself, I'll get you because I knew he was using me. Mm -hmm. And I went from uh, the chairman of the depot to vice president in the local. And I was vice president for eight years. Then I was the first secretary, black secretary treasurer for four years. And then I became uh, the first black president of the local, which I'm extremely proud of. And I was president of the local for 15 months and then the international president from New York uh, promoted me to international vice president of the Transport Workers Union. And I traveled all over the country for about 10 years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you didn't have to drive while you were in the while you were serving an office in the union, correct? Oh no. <laughs> I no, to make sure. no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so no, I was really I had, I had locals that I was responsible for in Houston, Texas. Akron, Ohio, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and in Pennsylvania, I had the local I, I, I started in, and I had a local in Bristol, and I had a local in Houston, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, oh, Flint, Michigan, and I had, I had eight locals on the road. I spent a lot of time on our planes. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you are the transportation guy. Now, so the local in Philly, is that local 234? Local in Philly is 234, yeah. Were yeah. you the first and only African-American to uh, be president or have there been many since? There's been, there's been a few since, yeah. But I was the first one, yeah. You know, when, they, when the president told me that you'll someday run against me. I knew that up the road I would, you know, but I, I, I convinced him that that wasn't what I was looking for. I just want to help him to win, you know. So did you two actually, you both were on the same ballot? You did run against him? Yeah, he ran against him, yeah. yeah. He lost in about six months after he shot himself. Oh no. Oh yeah. That was from having um, not knowing what to do with himself, I guess. I mean, we can't we can't know, I guess. But oh, I just I just think that he just couldn't come to terms with the fact that a black man beat him. So wow, he he had that resentment in him. You felt yes. okay, yeah. okay. Wow, well that's deep. So. Uh, I just needed to pause there and reflect that your boss, a union president, would rather kill himself than see you beat him in a race that he predicted one day you would win, right? So that's, uh, that's a lot. When Mr. Cooper told me that, I really was kind of surprised at how 
determined he was to let me know it was indeed because of race that this man um, ended his life. He felt he knew that in his heart because as you see, I was taking the stance of, oh, well, you know, he didn't know anything else, but you're your president and now he was out of a job and a lot of people, you know, may, may fall to the wayside and not know what to do with themselves and sadly end up in a depression. But no, he was determined to to say it was definitely about race. Isn't that something? It is. And it just shows you, you know, the time of during his times, you know, that that's that's what people in this case, that's what people did. I, I don't know. Uh, they did not want to see black folks do well um, mm-hmm. in, in certain prominent positions. And that's sad. Um, that I guess it's sad that he killed himself as well. But uh, oh, very, very sad. Very sad. I. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still conflicted. I, you know, I just, I want to say that he really, um, that it wasn't about race, but it is, this whole country is city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, that it, it all, it, it, it meant so much to not have uh, African-Americans promote it. And when it happened and some people couldn't, couldn't deal with it, we still see the same thing today. Yeah, I think we, we, we do. Uh, I think it's cloaked in, different language. <laughs> uh, I think it's not as overt as Merrill Pittman Cooper's times, but you look at it, it's it's very similar. It just has a different face to it now. Uh, we just don't give you the opportunity or we'll find a way to incriminate you so that you do not get the opportunity now. Now we come up with scandals. We come in, we, we come in with something that may or may not be true and we discredit you. And that's a new method in which you know, they limit progression, you know, and I, yeah. I, I mean, it's the same scenario though. We just don't want you there. These triggers, these triggers, these racial triggers are still with us for sure. Yeah, yeah they are. And, you know, it's a, just a testimony of how strong, you know, Mr. Pittman Cooper must've been to just hold his ground, but it seemed like this was, you know, he had it as his calling that this is what he had to do. Um, in terms of being a leader and a, apparently a natural leader at that. I agree. And again, I wasn't there, but I, I do want to say it, it It feels like the union president felt like that was his calling as well. It just shows you, you know, the, you know, just the times in which some of the, these people have lived, you know, in their life and the resistance and the things they had to endure just to get a seat on the bus, just to get a position that they work for and deserve, you know, just to get the pay that they should be, they should have, you know, a lot of us would crumble under that kind of pressure environment. And this was a time when the police weren't coming to protect you. You know, they weren't coming That's to save right. you. They weren't coming to intervene. If a group of a mob or whatever decided to attack you. When did you stop driving the bus? Was it the bus? I I stopped driving the the bus. I got promoted to the International Union in uh, 1977. Okay, because I think I heard that you met your wife on the bus. Yes, I did. (laughs) Would you like to tell our listeners that story? (laughs) (laughs) This is is a story that... uh, my daughter-in-law wants me to tell everybody I meet, you know, but 
I used to drive, uh, I used to have a route to what they call Mount Airy in, 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 in Philadelphia. And uh, I used to pick this lady up every morning and she was extremely easy on the eyes. <laughs> and I say uh, she's gorgeous. And, and uh, I used to speak to her every morning. But in the meantime, I had met her sister before I met her. And one morning she got on and I said to her, I know a lady looks just like you. She said, oh, I've heard that before and went on in the back and sit down. And every day I used to know exactly what time the lady, she was a pharmacist and she worked in Ab Abington. And the lady that used to bring her in always arrived about the same time that my bus arrived at a certain spot. And if I didn't see the car coming, I would slow down and make sure that I didn't miss it. So she used to every day, every day. So one day I said to her, uh, what is your name? So she, she was nice enough to tell me and I could tell that I was making some inroads because I could see her moving from the extreme rear, maybe to a seat and a seat up front and finally it reached the point where she's sitting right across from me. So right. <laughs> now I know I'm making progress. You know, I, I was always on that philosophy, regardless of how big the oak tree is, you can take the smallest paranite and if you continue to cut at it, it'll fall down. Oh. And that's what happened. She get, finally gave in. A branch fell into your hands. <laughs> so you got her name. And then greatest, it was the greatest day of my life oh. when I met her. I, I, uh, I tell you, I just, no man could ever love a woman more than I loved her. Oh. <laughs> and you guys were together how long? I met her in 19... 64. We dated 15 years mm. and then we were married 33 before she passed. Yeah. So 15 years, Mr. Cooper, what, it took you that long to propose? What happened? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I think she, she wanted the kids to grow up a little bit because when I met her, right, right. the youngest the youngest one was five, hmm. and Enid was seven, and Martin was nine. It makes sense. And they're, they're the best kids. I could not ever have biological kids better than they are. Oh. They're the finest. Yeah. An awesome match. Awesome match. Okay, so there were good things, great things that happened on the bus. <laughs> So I want to go back, since we kind of fast forwarded, I want to go back to your birthplace. Am I correct? It was Charlestown, West Virginia? Yes. That's two words, Charlestown, West Virginia. And so yes. I kind of, I looked it up and am I correct? It's like 5,000 people that live there now. <laughs> it's a very yes. small town. <laughs> so it was a small that, that, town. That, that was... Uh... I was born in Charlestown, West Virginia, but I was raised up about eight miles from Charlestown in a place called Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And 
I went to a two-room two school hmm. and my mother and, and, and I, I had a stepfather who taught me how not to be, how not to be a stepfather when the way he treated me was a real education. I know, I knew how to treat my kids when they grew up. And I, we lived in a two room, one room downstairs in the kitchen and one room upstairs and used to put up a curtain, divide my mother and my stepfather from where I slept. Oh, and wow. I went to a little school about 10 minutes away, two rooms. And uh, when I graduated from in the eighth grade, there was no high school for blacks in the town. Mm. So my mother had to take a job in an area called the Blue Ridge Mountains. And she took a job up there and uh, paid for me to attend a school called Stowe College, which was a junior college, high school and junior college combined. And I had the, I had, I was lucky enough to be taught by college professors in high school. And I, that was, I went there in 19, 1934. And I didn't graduate because I didn't have ample funds to finish paying my tuition, and it wouldn't give you tuition, wouldn't give you a diploma without satisfying your bill. Goodness. Yeah. So this this school um, was integrated. I mean, because of you, or because they wouldn't. The school, the school that I ended up going to high school and high school. No, that was a that was a a. Uh, a high school and junior college combined in a place called Hoppers Ferry, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And it was, it wasn't integrated, it was all blacks. Okay. And it, it was a school uh, that John Brown had tried to fix for the slaves mm -hmm. and they wouldn't, this, and they wouldn't allow him to do it. And then finally, uh, after the Civil War, he was successful. So that's the, that's the school in, that they use to educate the slaves. I'm just wondering why it had such a hefty tuition. So it wasn't public school then, it was a private school? Yeah, kind of private, yeah, yeah. The tuition wasn't, you know, like it was today, but back there, you know, it's, things were tough. Hmm. But, it, and it's, and if I can go back to, the stepfather lessons, um, you probably wanted to be out of the house if you were with, I, I assuming an abusive father, stepfather. Oh yeah, I couldn't wait to get out of the house. I used to, I used to come home for lunch mm -hmm. and he'd be there and he, he was uh, the type of man that used a little, what they call sauce, you know, alcohol. Oh. And he'd be there and he would tell me he wanted he wanted to keep me there till five minutes for one. Lunch started at twelve, and you know twelve to one, 
And I didn't have, like I told you, I didn't have, it wasn't 10 minutes to school. And he used to tell me, okay, Merle, five minutes to one, it's time to go to back. But he didn't know I had came home and set the clock up. Oh. Instead, instead of being five minutes to one, it's just 25 minutes at 12, you know. Okay. And I'd go back to school and I have plenty of time to play with the kids, you know, before the bell rang to start, yeah. You always had to outsmart them. Well, I, I was, I had my little tricks. <laughs> That's brilliant though. Um, if there were some lessons that you could pass along to other potential stepfathers, what would you say? I don't know. I, I just think that uh, stepfathers should treat, it's not the kid's fault that they, that they are uh, around. And if they don't want to accept the, the stepkids, they shouldn't accept the step lady. You know, I mean, the lady that uh, they married, if, they, if they're not going to be a good father to the kids, they should never marry their mother. Mm. And that was, um, and I can, I can sit here and tell you, like, the three, Martin and Marin and Enid, I've never had a crossword with them, never had an argument. We lived, I, I, I grew with them, yeah. mm -hmm. and I'm so proud of them. All of them successful. Two lawyers and a doctor. No stepfather has more than that. <laughs> well, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Can I ask you about your name, Merrill Pittman Cooper? That's uh, a bit unusual. Is it a family name? Do you know where you got your name from? You know, I like your questions. Uh, when I was born, it wasn't take her, take her to the hospital. I was born at home. And the doctor that delivered me, his name was Dr. Pittman. And my aunt uh, was the only one of my mother's relatives that ever went to college. She went to a college called Delaware State College in Dover, Delaware. And she had a... Uh, classmate named Merle. So her classmate told her she went, she came home and she ran everything. She was one of those, one of those bossy aunts. Anyway, she told my mother to name me Merle. And my aunt's classmate who was named Merle said, when he grows up, when he's 21, I'm going to buy him a suit. I'm still waiting for the suit. And the doctor was named Dr. Pittman. So they named me Merle Pittman Cooper. And the Dr. Pittman never registered my birth at the county, at the city hall. And I don't, I don't have a birth certificate today. The only thing I use today is a passport. I don't have a birth certificate. And the doctor, Dr. Pittman now, he, he didn't register me at the city hall. And I'm still waiting for the suit from, from my aunt's classmate. So I think I should change my name. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you get from West Virginia to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia? Well, I, uh, my stepfather wasn't too kind to my mother. And I persuaded my mother to come go to Philadelphia with my aunt and uncle who were already up here. Mm -hmm. And I stayed in 
West Virginia with my grandmother. And my mother came up here and then, you know, a few years later, I came behind her, yeah. And I've been, I came to Fuller in 1938. But you came from, it feels like there was a, a lot of segregation in Virginia. Then you come to Philly. I've heard about, you know, the segregation is issues. Obviously the strike was like, here it is in front of everybody's face. Um, and then how did you navigate the streets? Like when you were, before you got hired with the transit authority and then after you had to drive through certain neighborhoods, I imagine, and, and navigate certain territory. I had my problems. Yeah. I, 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 I had a lot of problems. I mean, it was, uh, that's something else when I say I, I don't have hope. I, I had some tough times when I first started working uh, for, for PTC. That's the one thing that still eats at me after a hundred years is the treatment in this country. I, I, nobody, could, nobody could ever realize uh, the treatment uh, what I went through when I first started. They, they used to lock the, used to have what they call uh, assignments. You know, you might go to work three o'clock in the morning or you might go to work and they would lock the door hmm. so that you couldn't get in. And then if you, if you were outside long enough, you would miss your assignment. It's like, like your assignment's 5.15. And you get there five o'clock and they lock the door on you. You know, the, the, the white boys mm -hmm. that worked there, they locked the door. And the dispatcher wouldn't know that the door was locked, you know? And then by the time you got in, you're late. So you lose your day's work. I had, I had my problems, you know, I, uh, but I tell you, the fact that I ended up where I ended up in the union and and that paid for all the problems that I had. I I just I'm just so proud that I outsmarted those people <laughs> yeah that thought I would never run against them, you know. Yeah. And and I just got uh, some some material from the local. They they uh, celebrated the 75th anniversary. And uh, I got a little note from uh, the gentleman who's president now that they were still riding on my shoulders. And that made me feel good. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> so you uh, retired from this job. I mean, it sounds like there was so much growth on their part. Like there was growth. They learned things. They started yeah. working with everyone, it, it was more inclusive, you know, where it didn't start out that way and you saw those changes and then you were able to retire. Was it peaceful? Was, was it like, it's time to get out of here or were you wanting to stay longer or what was that no, like? I, uh, my wife and I decided that uh, we were going to retire. We retired on September the 28th and we made settlement at 10.30 in the morning <laughs> and three o'clock in the afternoon, we were on the plane going to Florida. <laughs> and we, we spent 20 years down there. 
<laughs> that sounded like it was well thought out. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. On to the next we had, chapter. <laughs> we had my 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 wife, she she never left a stone unturned. She she used to I used to call her the warden because she ran everything. <laughs> but I was happy with it, you know. Yeah. yeah. We went to Florida, we stayed 20 years. Yeah. So Nicole, basically, he made an appearance in the Philly office that morning, and then he was on a Florida beach that afternoon? Retirement goals. I love it. Oh, yeah. Those were the days. But it seems as though many seniors struggle financially when they reach this age. Is there a financial structure that expects people to reach this age? Right. Now, we should do a story about this reality. I'm in total agreement. What was it like voting for Barack Obama? Oh my God, uh, uh, you know, they say a man isn't supposed to cry, but when he got elected, I shed a few tears. Yeah. Mm. I tell you, that was, uh, you know, I, I, I hope I live long enough to see uh, the lady president, you know? Me too. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. She's bright. She, she, I hope so. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when you think about it, Obama, he went through a lot. He's he's at the inaugural dance with his wife and Mitch McConnell and those politicians downtown in Washington in a restaurant planning how to make him a one-term president. I tell you, this country, I want to know, and maybe you can tell me before you leave, what we did to deserve this treatment. Hmm. Hmm. If you if you had to take a, a guess at the answer, what would you say to, to your own question? I, I don't know what we deserve did deserve it either. Unless no. We have, all we did was come, they brought us to this country and we have to build the White House, or we have to build this, that, and the other. We, we, we didn't do anything to this country to deserve the treatment we get. No. It's it's too long. It's a hundred years. It's a hundred years. I've seen wars, uh, you know, presidents, and and we signed the voting right bill. Now they want to take it away from us, and they're afraid to let us vote because uh, we won't vote for them. I, you know, you and Enid and fifteen others could sit and try to change me. Yeah, I just. I just, I don't see, I don't see any bright future in the, in the near future for, for us. Mm. I, I, I just can't. What about for your grandchildren? Oh, they, I hope they live in a better world than I did. I do. Yeah. Wow, what a great conversation. It was such an honor. He seems to be set on answering that question, though. What did we do to deserve this treatment? Isn't it something that after all of his accomplishments, the discrimination and persecution of African Americans stays on his mind? I have to admit, this question stays on my mind as well. How about you? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes we see progress, and then as a whole, we don't see the progress. Like, like nothing changes. 
Well, Mr. Cooper may not be hopeful, but ironically, when we first started talking, he did mention wanting to stick around for another 100 years. Oh, he should. We need more people like Merrill Pittman Cooper. He's truly a man of character. And amazing energy. Now, meeting guests like him is truly an honor. Definitely a perk to this job. Speaking of meeting more interesting guests, we know you, our listeners, have ideas of people in your circles who are history makers, too. We want to meet them. Drop us a line at BeforeYouGo.TV. That's BeforeYouGo.TV. And maybe they'll appear on our podcast. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away. Just pick up that phone and make that call. There's no time like the present. What What a a gift. Before You Go is an Epiphany, Inc. production. Hear more from Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte at beforeyougo.tv.